It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something in your own head. Beat it up and I've got no people. And a fucking platter with a fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang from the government for hiring a combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. <laughs> and Bloom. Oh, yes, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an exemplary excerpt of excellence <laughs> in an egregious world. An egregious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right, and we together are the dynamic duo. We are the courageous couple, the spectacular spouses, (laughs) and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident (laughs) with an insidious insect? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider patient relationship exists. Or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse, we strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Boy, by now you should be doing it by heart. I know. I got distracted, though. My office manager was asking a question. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. The miracle of texting. I know, I know. That's right. Well, you know, but sometimes the ambulance is not just around the horizon, around the corner, by the way. So when somebody gets hurt or sick, who are you going to call out there? It can't be Ghostbusters because you really have a ghost on your hand if you, the average citizen, don't show the world that you've got more sense than a bag of Skittles by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire (laughs) line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits uh-huh. <laughs> at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster, and they're designed by yours truly, 
an old country doctor, and hers truly, an advanced registered nurse practitioner, a high-tech young woman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You're so sweet. Incredible. Compare our kits for contents, quality, cost with anybody else's stuff. Please do. Uh, really suggest that yeah, you do. Or just ask anyone who's ever bought one. You'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, you know, we learn as much from you as you do from us. That should be pretty clear if you listen to any of these programs. <laughs> so give us some education preparation. It is easy. And here's a lovely nurse, Amy, to tell you how. Absolutely. Contact us by email anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Oh, you know what it else is? is these glasses aren't strong enough. Oh. I can't see real well. Or find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, or our Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. And I just wanted to mention, I look really young to you because I drink green juices. It green says, juices. It says one day renewal. Oh boy, scary! It scary, has what's happening? Apple, celery, cucumber, kale, collard greens. Lemon, ginger, uh, let's see, spinach, wow, uh, and spirulina, and chlorella. I used to feed that to bait. <laughs> to our right, wow. to our baby fish. Now I want to tell you, when you go out to the living room, you're going to smell this because I shook it up and then I loosened the top. Uh-huh. And then don't uh, do that here, please. No, 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 no. <laughs> it gets worse. So I did that. I put the juice off to the side. And then I saw the bird food needed to be moved up to its regular position instead of on the floor of the cage. And I moved it up, and then I turned around, and I grabbed the juice, and I thought, oh, I need to shake this. <laughs> and I shook it, and it went all over our couch. Oh, no. Couch and floor in the family room. Girl, so please. you're going to smell apple, oh, okay. celery. Yes. Apples <laughs> and celery. Wow. Crazy, Ginger. baby. And she doesn't smell bad, it's... but <laughs> I couldn't mop it up, but I did wipe it up. So, well, we oh, well. appreciate everything you do for us and, <laughs> and I guess to us. <laughs> it's good for you, it is good it's for you. It's got a lot of vitamin C, vitamin A, some calcium. Tastes really good, I think. Uh, well, we're gonna find out. I'll have to lick, lick the couch, I guess, to find out. <laughs> You don't like green juice, so you, it's okay, honey. You don't have to. <laughs> hey, you know that every year wildfires race through the western part of our country, uh, causing, gosh, knows how much par- property damage, loss of life, all sorts of terrible things. So far, there have been 29 people that have died in the latest series of wildfires, this time in Northern California, and a number still missing. Some people say as high as 500 and more than 3,000 buildings have been destroyed. Just a catastrophic series of wildfires they're having in Northern California. Now, I've reported on these events. I've made recommendations to those people living in areas that are at risk. And it seems that I do it pretty much every year. But you know what? The topic was made very personal to me just last year in 2016, in November of 2016, when my home in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, barely avoided being burnt to the foundation by the whim of the winds. I'll tell you that much. The mountain fire that occurred there started off in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, was put together by two 
teenagers, of course. Uh, they were initially arrested for aggravated arson, but guess what? The charges were later dropped because apparently if the fire started in a national park, it's excluded from state jurisdiction from prosecution of wrongdoers, which makes me wonder who the hell does have jurisdiction in these cases. Smokey the Bear, I'll bet these were uh, pretty well-placed kids, mayor's sons, things like that. I don't know, but I am hopping mad about these kids having gone away scot-free with that fire, which killed 14 people and injured 134 and uh, took out 100 buildings down to the foundation on our mountain and over 2,000 buildings in total. Matter of fact, uh, I've driven by areas that look like they're still in some kind of nuclear winter. I'll tell you, uh, it is really, really terrible. Now, as with the wildfire in Gatlinburg, High winds are the culprit in spreading flames throughout Northern California. There are a lot, a lot of high winds in that area, and especially in wine country where a lot of the fires are occurring. And, of course, as you can imagine, mandatory evacuations are being ordered in a bunch of different areas. Conditions are only worsening as time passes. The fire travels so fast in the wind that there are people that, thinking, that think their area is safe when they go to sleep and they wake up inhaling smoke and having to hit the road in panic uh, in the morning. Matter of fact, one couple escaped being burned by jumping into their pool. It got to that point. Now, what can you do in the face of an irresistible force like a wildfire? How can you protect your property and maybe yourself from being devastated by fire? Well, the two main principles of property defense are one, vegetation management, and two, creating a defensible space. Now, it should be noted the property defense is not the same as personal defense. The main principles of personal defense for a wildfire that is on your property is to get out of Dodge, hit the road jack, ski-daddle, you know, basically, look, it's your life or the property, your life's more important and that of your loved ones. But let's talk a little bit about how you can prepare your property to have a shot at surviving a wildfire. Now, the first principle I said was vegetation management. With vegetation management, the key is to direct fires away from your house. And there are several ways to accomplish this, all of which require some vigilance and some pretty regular maintenance. You want to clean up dead wood, uh, leaf piles that lie within a short distance, say 30 feet of your building structure. you got to pay attention to clearing off the roof. And the gutters, that's important. How often do you do that? Well, you need to do it probably more often if you're in an area at risk for wildfires. Now, although you may have spent time and money putting up lush landscaping around your home, you may have to choose. Do you want attractive but flammable plants next to your structure or do you want fire protection? Uh, another thing is if you're a prepper and you want to have, you put up a bunch of thorny plants, let's say, under each window, and they've gotten really big. Well, the truth of the matter is these things can serve as tinder to get your house fire going, and so you may have to decide between having that kind of protection or fire protection. So these are tough decisions, but it's something that you're going to have to think about. Now, of course, you want to uh, thin out those Thick canopy trees that might be near your house. Make sure that no two canopies of trees touch each other. If they're anywhere near your house, about 50 feet on flatland, 200 feet of downhill. I'll talk about why it's a longer space if you're if 
uh, the proper the plants are downhill from your retreat uh, those things need to be thinned so when you're pruning branches off you want to prune them off below let's say 10 to 12 feet high separate them by 10 to 20 feet if you can no tree should ever overhang the roof and eliminate all shrubs at the base of the trunks that's very important now lawns and gardens they should be pretty well boom and by the way it's very very important for you to dispose of this dead wood that you've just pruned off very safely you want to get it away from your property you don't want that to be fuel for the fire uh, lawns and gardens well i mean they should be always very well hydrated if you collect uh, long cuttings another debris uh, for mulch remember they can be used as fuel by the fire if water is limited then you have a very dry sort of brownish lawn well you know keep it cut back as soon much as you possibly can remember us preparedness folk we don't have much use for lawns anyway better to use them for uh, vegetable herb gardens things like that think about that for your lawn space or at least some of your lawn lawn space in the future the second principle of property uh, wildfire protection is what we call the defensible space and a defensible space is an area around a structure where you have treated the wood and vegetation or cleared it or reduced it to spread the uh, flames to stop the spread of flames towards a structure and having a defensible space also provides room for those people that are fighting fighting the fire to actually work and, and hopefully be effective doing the things that they're doing now the amount of defensible space you need depends as i said before whether you're on flat land or on a steep slope flatland fires spread more slowly than a fire that's on a slope hot air and flames rise right hot air does rise and a fire on a steep slope with wind blowing uphill towards your house spreads very not only spreads very fast but it produces these things called spot fires and these are small fires that ignite vegetation ahead of the main burn due to small bits of burning debris in the air now that's why the area of vegetation management is larger if the vegetation is downhill of your home so if you live on a hill a house is on a hill then all that vegetation from further away than you think may actually play a factor in whether your house survives a wildfire or not now wood piles other flammables they should need to be located at least 20 to 30 feet away from structures gardening tools keep them in sheds those sheds should be at a distance from the home uh, you know concrete walkways and perimeter walls sometimes they're very decorative decorative but they also may be very helpful in impeding the progress of a fire basically cause sort of an a fire break that you have constructed there so that might be something to consider when you're building or remodeling or uh, uh, re-landscaping a home uh, from the standpoint of vents uh, and att attic vents should be covered with screening to prevent small embers from entering the structure of course most uh, attics and homes are just wood structures and so it's very important for you to make sure that the fires don't get into that area that is a good way for the uh, fire to start in your home uh, additional strategies for the home uh, are really uh, I, and by the way a really good list of what you should be considering you can find that at a place called firewise.org firewise.org i just want to say that is a great resource and i'm so glad that you found it for people well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Now, of course, once you've de developed a 
defensible space. The natural natural inclination that you're going to have is to, well, we want to defend it, right? right? Well, unfortunately, you have to remember you're going to be in the middle of a lot of heat and smoke. Therefore, it is wise to follow the principles of personal defense that I mentioned before. Get out of Dodge if there's a safe way to leave. Your family's lives may depend on it. That's very important to know that if you're, hit, hit, if you're hitting a road, then you might have a better chance of surviving that fire than if you stay there. Have a bag already packed with food, water, extra clothes, batteries, flashlights, and more. And don't forget to bring your cell phone, any important papers you might need, and some cash, especially in small bills. Remember, when there is a power outage, one of the outages is purchasing power. Many times you can't use your credit cards, and so you have to actually have some physical cash. If you only carry large bills, well, people are going to say they're not going to be able to make change. So think about that. Even if they can make change, they're going to say that. That's right. <laughs> now, as an added precaution, make sure you shut off any air conditioning system that draws air into the house from outside. That is bad news if that air outside is on fire. So turn off all your appliances, close all your windows, lock all your doors, shut off air conditioning. And like any other emergency, you should always have some form of communication system that's established with your loved ones in case you're not together. And... With regards to that, learn to text because text texting requires less bandwidth than voice calls. These cellular networks really have only the bandwidth available to handle about 20% of their customers being on the phone at any one time. And so therefore, there's going to be a very, it's very, a very big likelihood that you're just not going to be able to connect with people unless you text. Uh, medical kits, they should contain masks, of course, for, for smoke, eye and hand protection, uh, burn ointment, or aloe vera is a good natural alternative, non-stick dressings, especially for burns. There are specialized, other specialized burn dressings that ha- sort of incorporate petrol, um, petroleum jelly and gauze that, that you can put that together to make your own. Um, Gauze rolls, medical tape, these can be used for additional coverage of wounds, burn wounds. And I think you should round out your kit with some scissors, some cold packs, maybe some eye wash. Remember, smoke is really a major irritant to the eyes. Now, if your routes of escape are blocked, you may have to hit the road by foot. That's a scary scary proposition. But if that's the case, make sure you're dressed in long pants and sleeves, heavy boots. Wool blankets are actually pretty helpful as an additional outside layer because wool is relatively fire resistant. Some people think it's even better to wet the blanket, but do not wet the blanket. Wet materials transfer heat much faster than dry materials and cause really bad scald type burns. Right, steam burns. Exactly. Really horrible. Now, if you're stuck inside the building, you cannot get out as flames all around, well, Retreat to the side of the house that's further further from the fire and with the least number of windows. Remember, windows do transfer heat to the inside. Stay there unless you have to leave, and you probably will at one point or another. But when you have to leave due to smoke or the building actually catching fire, if that's the case, wrap yourself in that wool blanket and leaving, leaving only your eyes uncovered and then crawl out. Stay low to the floor because there's less smoke and heat. The lower you go, remember what I said, hot air rises, right? So keep your face down towards the floor. 
That's going to help protect your airway also, which is very important. You can recover from burns on your skin, but you can't recover from burns on your lungs. Okay, well, you know what? We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about pregnancy, all sorts of stuff related to pregnancy, uh, things like, well, I guess... uh, early pregnancy complications, how to recognize them. We've been talking about how to take care of a pregnancy during the early stages, the late stages, what to look for that might be uh, a risk for for women in this type of situation. So I think it's important for us to finish this and I want to finish this with well what do you think on the on the best day of a woman's life and the worst day of her life that's their the worst day, day is because labor. the worst day is because it's a lot of pain well not everybody but most people and the best day in the whole world because you end up with a baby that's right you you've spent <laughs> all that time taking care of that pregnancy for oh 9 my months goodness and, Eating well, the right things, drinking your green juice, right? Oh boy. taking your multivitamins, <laughs> oh my avoiding goodness. all the bad stuff in the world. Well, let me tell you that as, as a woman approaches her due date, you can actually sort of tell that things are going to be happening soon. Mm-hmm. And in that circumstance, what you're going to see is the belly, which is pretty high before, is starting to what we call drop. Because the baby, the fetus, is assuming a position that's deep in the pelvis. The patient's abdomen, therefore, has a different look. And what we call the fundus, which is the top of the uterus, appears to be lower. And indeed, the the measurement may go down. This is not a reason to be uh, concerned necessarily about it because it is the proper thing. You want the baby to be able to drop deep into the pelvis. Eventually, it's going to have to drop out, right? So that is something that is okay. Now... Uh, this happens also because the neck of the uterus, called the uh, cervix, uh, starts to relax. And when it does that, your patient may notice a mucus-like discharge mixed with a little blood. And this we call the bloody show. And that's usually a sign that labor is going to occur sometime soon, anywhere from the next few hours to the next week or so. And not to be alarmed. Because what happens a lot of times is people say, oh my gosh, I'm bleeding. If it's thick and mucusy and stringy and just a just a little tinge of brownish or a little bit of red blood, that's okay. Now, anything that drips out of you or continues to come out, that's bad. You, If you can, immediately seek help. So that's the difference. Absolutely. So all this softening and thinning out of the of the cervix. By the way, you can actually, when you feel the cervix, if you do a, a vaginal exam, uh, you'll feel that the cervix is usually very firm during most of the pregnancy, but it becomes very soft when you finally get very close to being into, in labor. And that we call that effacement, where the, the cervix goes from being, a, well, maybe an inch or so thick to being paper thin. And we, that usually is measured in percent, you're, you know, 20% effaced or 50% effaced or completely effaced. Once, once the effacement occurs, well, you're going to start having the cervix open. And when the cervix open, 
opens, that's called dilation. You actually can feel with your finger the top, usually the top of the baby's head. Usually the head is what comes down first. Now, dilation of the cervical canal, uh, well, that's going to be very slow at first, especially in early pregnancy, in first pregnancies, but it speeds up once your patient reaches about, let's say, three to four centimeters of dilation. Now, at this level of dilation, you'll be able to usually place two, two normal-sized fingers in fingertips in the cervix and feel something firm. That's the baby's head. You can actually prove that it's a baby's head by feeling the what we call the sutures, which are the uh, basically the separations between the uh, bones of the skull. We have one fused skull, essentially, but babies have a number of different bones that make up the skull, and they fuse over the course of time once they're born. Uh, uh, I want to say that a lot of people, because they're so interested in this and they want to get more information, are going to be doing a lot of vaginal exams. Remember, the vaginal exams are invasive. They're not necessary in, in frequency, certainly, in most cases. And, uh, you know, you could introduce infection, so you want to be careful. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. Now, contractions are going to be becoming more frequent as time goes on, as, as dilation occurs. Uh, to identify a contraction, you feel the skin on the soft part. You can feel the skin of the soft part of your cheek right now. Do that right now. And now I want you to touch your forehead. A contraction will feel sort of like your forehead, and in between will feel like the skin of your cheek. There are things called false labor pains, and they're also known as Braxton Hicks contractions. Those are sort of irregular, and they usually go away with some fluids and some bed rest. So if, if you are not really in labor, just having some false labor pains, well, just getting hydrated and laying on your left side for a while usually will go away in an hour or so. Now, if contractions are coming faster and more furious, even with bed rest and hydration, you know what? It's probably the real thing. Now, some people break their water. That's a gush of watery fluid that comes from the vagina. That is the amniotic fluid that the baby lives in. And we call that breaking the water. Or or we call it the rupture of membranes. It's also a sign of impending labor and delivery. The timing's highly variable, however. Sometimes uh, you might confuse some urine leakage with the actual rupture of the bag of water. The difference can be told very easily with a product called nitrazine paper, nitrazine paper. And what you do is you touch it to the fluid uh, and it turns a bright blue when it's amniotic fluid and it would be probably yellowish or greenish if it, or, or yellowish mostly if it's just plain old urine. Uh, so if you're looking for you're looking for a bright blue result, if a bright blue bright blue result occurs, well that usually verifies the bag of water is broken, and it's time to get that person to wherever you're going to be doing your birthing. Uh, if you have a microscope in the hospital tent, by the way, if you have a little amniotic fluid on a slide, when it dries, it reveals crystals that look like ferns. So this is this ferning on the slide is more solid proof that the membrane is ruptured and even more solid than just a blue color on nitrazine paper. Of course, dilation occurs at, over time. Everybody's a little different as to how fast that goes. But once you hit about 10 centimeters, and by the way, that depends mostly on how many babies you've had. 
Exactly. You had a lot of babies. It's going to go fast. You oh, have yeah. Yeah, first baby probably going to go Sometimes in the slow. car. Yeah. <laughs> or at the door of the emergency room or at work. <laughs> exactly right. So once you hit about 10 centimeters of dilation, we call that completely dilated. And that, before you try to start pushing the baby out, you should always be completely dilated. And hopefully the baby's head has dropped even further. The, the delivery of the baby's best accomplished, of course, with the help of an experienced midwife or obstetrician, but those professionals are going to be hard to find in survival settings. There should be somebody that you that is assigned in a survival group, mutual assistance group, as the midwife or the person that's going to be doing the delivering. That's usually the medic, you guys, so it's important for you to get hip on what you're going to need to do. Of course, you know, if there's no chance of accessing modern medical care at all, it's going to be up to you to perform that delivery and probably pretty much everything else, too. So it's important for you to be sure that you're keeping an eye on things. Now, now to get ready for delivery, wash your hands first, put gloves on, and then place clean sheets so that there will be the least amount of contaminated nation possible. You want to tuck one under the mother's butt and spread it on your lap so that the baby, which comes out very slippery, ends up landing on the sheet instead of the floor if you lose your grip on it. Probably a good practical <laughs> bit of advice there. Good point, honey. Now, you want to place a towel on the mom's belly. This is where the baby's going to go once you deliver it. And that towel, you use it to immediately dry the baby and, and wrap it up. Remember, new, newborns do lose heat pretty quickly, and so you don't want the baby to um, become hypothermic. Now... As the labor progresses, the baby's head, now, now, now you got everything set up, but a, a, now the person's got to push, the lady's got to push and push that baby out. As And as she does that, the baby's head is going to move down lower into the birth canal and uh, might go up again in between contractions, but over the course of the time, there should be generally, see, you should see some progress. As the baby's head begins to come out, the vagina begins to bulge, and you might actually begin to see the top of the baby's head. We call that crowning. And if the water is not yet broken, uh, you might see instead of hair, you might see the lining of the bag of water. That's going to look like a slick gray balloon-like structure. And that, in that circumstance, you can pop that if you want with a fingernail or uh, uh, there are special little instruments to pop it with. And it's not absolutely necessary to do that, though. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that that's an option. Certainly might might help things progress faster. It might not. Now, some pressure on the membrane is going to rupture it, and that is okay, like I said. Um, but you're going to want to do something called perineal massage. Now, that is a little controversial. Some people do it. Some people don't uh, in the midwifery field. And... It's done usually to make space and to stretch out the vagina a little bit so it's less likely Gently. for it to tear. <laughs> right. What you do is place two gloved fingers along the edge of the vagina by what we call a perineum. Perineum is the area between the vagina and the anus. And using very gentle pressure, you move your fingers from side to side. And it stretches the area a little bit, gives the baby a little more room to come out. And it's not, and it's something that might cause less tearing Sometimes the baby coming out causes a lot of tears, especially in a first mother, first time uh, pregnancy. Right. So this is something that may help. It's not advocated by everybody. I want to just say that everybody uh, 
should know that it, it is a little controversial, but perineal massage might decrease the risk of lacerations caused by the delivery. Now, with each contraction, a baby's head's going to come out a little bit more. Don't be concerned if it goes back in a little bit after the contraction. That's okay. It will make or normally make steady progress out. More and more of the head will become visible over time. It might be a little swelling on the top of the head. We call that caput, C-A-P-U-T. And this is something that is not too uncommon. Some In a tight fit, some kids may have a lot of it. Uh, if there's space, uh, you might not see it at all. Now, what you want to do every time that there's a contraction, you and you can tell that, remember, by feeling the top of the uterus, that's the fundus, see if it gets hard like your forehead. When that's happening, you want to encourage your mother to help by taking a deep breath with each contraction and then pushing while slowly exhaling out. Now, on occasion, a small cut is made in the bottom of the edge of the vagina that to make... Uh, Room for the baby to be delivered. That's called an episiotomy. I really discourage this, if at all possible, as the cut has to be sutured afterwards, and you might be able to get away without a major tear, but you, instead of making one yourself, but uh, I, I always made this decision as the head was crowning. I only perform it if I believe a very large jagged tear will occur that might damage the, the rectum or the muscles that control defecation, things like that. So I really did that very, very rarely. Some doctors or midwives do it as a matter of course. They just do it on everybody. Um, <laughs> yes, probably mostly doctors, though, not midwives. But you were really good. You refused to cut episiotomies most of the time, and I admire that. Oh, well, thank you. You were more like a nurse midwife. Right. Which well, is definitely a thumbs up. And I consider that a compliment. Well, you were very I, patient. You like to rock in your rocking chair and just wait till nature took its course. That's right. Well, you no know, sense in rushing it. What else would an old doc, country doctor do? I love it. Rock in a rocking chair. <laughs> Good for you, honey. Now, as the baby's head emerges, it's going to usually face either straight up or down, and usually then there's a process by which it sort of turns to the side. Now, the cord sometimes shows up too. It might be wrapped around the baby's neck. If this is the case, just slip it over the baby's head. Uh, in the cases, however, when the cord is really, really tight and is preventing delivery, well, you might have to clamp the cord. If you do clamp the cord, clamp it um, two, in two spots, about uh, I don't know, two inches apart, and then cut in between. That'll release the tension. might make delivery easier. And... Then what I want you to do is gently hold each side of the baby's head, apply gentle traction straight down, straight down to the floor, and that's going to help that top shoulder of the baby out of the birth canal. Right. And sometimes that can be a problem getting the shoulders out and could actually cause some damage, so you have to be very careful. But this is one way that you can do that. Occasionally you have to put a little steady, gentle pressure on the top of the uterus right over where the bladder is, right over the pubic bone, uh, during a contraction, if the mother's exhausted, not being able to pull, push the baby out herself, well, that's something that you might have to do. You might have to press on the top of the uterus itself uh, as well in, in some rare cases. This is something that is just, a, I would say, something you don't want to do, but if, it, if you have to, you might have to do it. But be pa as patient as you possibly can. 
Remember, no, most of the time, little, if any, help is going to be needed for the baby to deliver, especially if you've, uh, the lady has had women, uh, children before. So once the shoulders are out, the baby will deliver with one last push, and the mom can now rest. What you ha or have to do, though, is you have to put the baby directly on the mother's belly and clean out its nose and mouth with a bulb syringe. We have, uh, I think, bulb syringes. Do we have bulb syringes? Um, not for sale. Not for sale. Oh, <laughs> I have actually some. have quite a few of them. <laughs> uh, we don't have them. We we don't have a, a birthing kit, so to speak. No, I have not put together a birthing kit, darling. Well, maybe we should do. We should do. <laughs> we should do something like that. Uh, the baby will usually begin crying, which is a good sign that it's a vigorous infant. Uh, spanking the baby's bottom to get it to cry is oh, rare, no. rarely needed. It's an old, more not of a, a bad. It's a sort of a cliche. Yes. More than anything else, I would say. A better way to stimulate a baby to cry is to just maybe rub its back. Have good, you done that? You used to do good that, Good idea. Right? Or the feet. Right. Uh, yep, and that would do it. That would and do I, it and, and not nails or scissors in the feet. Just rub them. Just kind of give them a, like a, hello, baby. Let's wake up. Yeah, scissors on the feet. No, cut a cut a toe no. off until the baby cries. No, <laughs> oh my gosh, a little innocent baby. We have to be nice, honey. So anyhow, you got to dry the baby. You have to wrap it up in a small towel or blanket. At this point, clamp the cord. If you haven't had to clamp it before because it was tightly around the neck, if it's not tightly around the neck, you certainly don't want to clamp it until the baby is born. And you don't want to necessarily hurry too much with regards to that. Uh, I don't think it's usually necessary to do that. Uh, but when you do, uh, take two clamps, uh, two inches apart, clamp the umbilical cord, cut, cut it at that point with uh, uh, your scissors, and then just wait. Okay, the baby has now been delivered. The baby's being held by mommy, and the cord has been clamped. And make sure that the, there's no bleeding coming from the cord. Now, once a baby has delivered, it's a placenta's turn. And in this case, you have to be patient. Again, in most cases, the placenta delivers by itself in a few minutes. Um, avoid pulling on the umbilical cord. A lot of people are impatient and just say, well, let me just pull this thing out. And they just grab it by the umbilical cord by the clamp and try to pull the placenta out. That's bad. Sometimes it breaks the cord. Uh, because of excessive traction, and that's and if you do that, then you have a placenta that might be stuck in there. If it's stuck in there, it may require you're placing your hand deep into the uterus to extract it. That will go up to your elbow and is not something that you want to do. It is traumatic, and it can introduce infection. You know, usually what you can do is you can ask mom to give a push. When it's clear the placenta is almost out, it will come out with her push most likely. Now, if you do have to apply traction to the cord or any, for any reason, well, you got to place your fingers above the pubic bone and press as you apply, press upward on the belly as you apply mild traction because this is going to prevent the uterus from being turned inside out by your pressure, which is a potentially life-threatening situation if the placenta is stubborn, sort of stuck in there uh, and Honestly, this is something that you only want to do if you absolutely have to do it. Most of the time, it's absolutely unnecessary. Now, a moderate amount of bleeding is not unusual after the delivery of the childbirth. Do not be surprised. Once the placenta is out, you want to massage the uterus, the top of the uterus, which is called the fundus, and make sure that it is hard. In most cases, that was what naturally happens. 
when a woman delivers. And that if you know if you see that the uterus is hard, then you can examine the placenta. Once the placenta is out, it's very important to take a look at it. The fetal surface, uh, there's a fetal surface and a maternal surface. The fetal surface is gray and shiny. That's where the baby lived. You turn it inside out and you see the maternal surface, which looks like a rough version of liver. And the uh, maternal surface is separated into sections called cotyledons. And these are basically like little lobes. And if a portion of the placenta remains inside, you may actually notice that there seems to be a hunk of placenta missing. And in that circumstance, you may have to extract it manually, uh, as I mentioned before. That is a rare circumstance, but sometimes is necessary. Now, the uterus after delivery does contract a controlled bleeding. Uh, and when once the baby is out and the placenta is out, the uterus is felt around the area of the belly button. So it drops in size quite a bit, not down to normal, but quite a bit. In the long labor, of course, the uterus may be very tired, just like the mother is tired after a delivery, and sometimes it is slow to contract, and as a result, causes excessive bleeding. The contraction is what stops the bleeding. So in that case, just massage the uterus gently at the top of the uterus, and that normally makes it firm again, limits blood loss. You may have to do this from time to time during the first 24 hours or so after delivery. Amy, when you took care of people after delivery, how often did you go in there to... Uh, massage your uterus? Well, I have to say, um, as a labor and delivery nurse, you know, we had to chart on these patients uh, at least every 15 minutes. So, you know, I, I'd say within the first two hours after delivery, after the placenta came out, we were probably massaging every five or 10 minutes. And what wow. we would do is instruct the mother to kind of keep her hand on her belly or at to reach down and show her how to keep it tight and explain to her, you know, if you keep your uterus nice and contracted in a tight muscle, you'll have less bleeding. Less bleeding means you're going to have more energy. You're going to have more energy to take care of your baby and more blood supply feeds your breast milk better. So it helps with healing. Um, and once you explain to them why they need to kind of, hurt themselves a little bit because it doesn't feel good, then they understood. But we checked on that every few minutes. Well, tell me a little bit about what you would do as you cared for this mother for the next couple of days before she left the hospital. What oh. would be the routine? <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, we would feed her first, make sure she had a really good meal um, within 30 minutes of delivery. As long as we knew there were no hemorrhages, she was getting a meal, and what you wanted to do after she had the meal was, um, of course, she was breastfeeding before you threw food in her face. Breastfeeding is whatever she wanted. You know, the stimulation of the baby on the breast, you're, you're not getting milk yet. Right, you're getting you're something getting colostrum, else, right? yeah, colostrum, which is loaded with all kinds of good nutrition for the baby. And what does that look like? It's sort of a watery yellow. Mm. It's watery. So uh, let her breastfeed for a little while. The baby's probably going to be too tired to really be aggressive. And then we're going to feed her, and then we're going to get her up to bathe. And there's just something about warm water and bathing that just 
kind of reinvigorates you. You know, mm-hmm. you've been through a long day and relaxes you. Um, so you kind of cleanse yourself of all that stress. And you just now think about the baby. So she's going to get back in bed if she wants or She can stay in the chair. Or walk around a little bit. It's okay. Uh, thick pads need to be put on because a lot of people have um, discharge for a few days. Now, how does it change? Usually it just starts off as blood, Red, right? Yeah. Very bloody. Yeah, right? and then it gets, of course, brownish. And then sometimes it's sort of a yellowish. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're going to wear pads until that eases up. And if you really have red bleeding for more than... A week, and I and when I say bleed, I mean like just still mixed with a little bit of blood. You could have an infection in the uterus, and you want to go see your midwife or your doctor. What are the and signs? Have them check that, you. What are some signs that people might? A lot of pain in the belly, uh-huh. foul odor, a smell from the discharge is usually the biggest clue that something's not right. So the bleeding colors doesn't doesn't change to the brownish and go away. Um, there's some pain in your belly that just it really shouldn't be there after delivery. You're kind of sore and tender, but you shouldn't really have pain. And, and that smell, I'd say that smell, there's a certain smell right after the baby comes out because you're shedding the lining that was built up in the uterus. And you, you'll know what that is in a day or so. You'll say, okay, I, I, I get what that's supposed to smell like. If that changes and just becomes yucky, <laughs> in any way, shape, or form, seek help because you might have an infection there. and That that can lead to really bad things. Now, one thing that I think is also very important is to look out for fever. If there's a yes. fever, that is an also Absolutely. A, a sign of infection. And 100%. that is very, very, very important. Now, everything that we've just told you about delivering a baby is the way we would deliver a baby. And not everybody delivers babies exactly that way. Some people uh, make a, a cut in the vagina for the baby to, to come out more easily. That It's called an episiotomy. They do that every time. We rarely did it. Other people um, might not press on the uterus. If, uh, the, if the mother can't push, they might just wait. Uh, and that's a, a possibility as well. There are just a lot of different schools of thought regarding how to deliver a baby. And, and you know what? Most of them are perfectly fine, very rare that there's a particular one that is very, very dangerous. Just remember what your goal is. Your goal is to have, at the end, at the end, a healthy mother That's right. and a healthy baby. And you Absolutely. want them to be healthy physically. You want them to be healthy emotionally. You want them to bond with each other. These are things that are super, super important. And... You know, we spent a lot of time talking about this. I guess we, it's a favorite subject of ours because we spent so much time <laughs> yes. practicing uh, practicing it. But uh, the truth of the matter is it's something that's rarely talked about in detail. It is. And, and it is indeed part of your responsibility as a medic. Well, I just want to say a couple more things. Um, helpful things for the mother afterwards um, was not to put a lot of pressure on yourself about breastfeeding. Some babies are tired the first day or two. So you, you can't expect vigorous breastfeeding the first few times you try. It it takes the baby a while. Remember, the baby's never breastfed before. And it takes the mom 
a little while to figure out exactly the perfect position and oh okay the mouth has to be fully opened and if I brush my nipple against the cheek or the baby will turn its head and then latch on there's just things that you're going to get to know so don't put pressure on yourself don't freak out the baby's not going to starve to death the babies are born with extra fat and they will lose weight every baby will lose weight they have this extra fat so they can get used to breastfeeding. Plus, your milk won't come in for a couple of days. Believe me, you'll know. <laughs> you'll fill up like Elsie the cow. Um, so that's okay. So again, don't put the pressure on yourself. Let you and the baby get to figure out breastfeeding. Don't freak out about it. And um, as far as hygiene, there's something called a peri bottle. It's really just a squirt bottle. Um, not a spray bottle, but actually a squirt bottle. You can fill that up with um, just water from the tap. Warm water is best. Uh, sometimes people have put a little bit of betadine in it. That's not really necessary. But it's very helpful that after you go to the bathroom, you use that peri bottle is the technical term, but really just a squirt bottle, to clean yourself up. So it helps to get rid of some of the goop that's coming out because toilet paper doesn't work real well. And I know the men listening to this are going, oh, my God, I'm so grossed out. And if you have a little <laughs> kitty tub, <laughs> maybe. But if they're real men, they won't be. Yeah. Uh, and if you have, a, like, a little kitty um, kitty tub or a <laughs> kitty swimming pool. Or even just a bathtub filled up some, with a few inches of right. water. Sit you, in it. helps if, to heal. Right. If you helps don't you have a bathtub, you know, even a kitty pool would do. So... That's something that I think it is a good thing. Now, we had some visitors yesterday to the warehouse. Tell tell us about those guys. Oh, yeah. from They're from Orlando. Yeah, it was Donovan and Jim. And they're from... Donovan apparently is a, a writer. He wrote a book, The 9-11 Project. Uh-huh. So yeah, he's, he's he's got a doctorate degree and yeah, man, he, his wife is an anchor on the station. Anchor on KMG six in Orlando. But so. he covers all the hurricanes, right? And so he's he's very interested in disaster preparedness, and sure seems to me he didn't outwardly claim it, but he's totally a prepper. <laughs> this guy thinks of every snare. This is a guy whose car went into the bay. When he lived down here. Wow. Yeah, he had some accident. Yes. And he had to get out of his car that was going underwater. I mean, he, he's been in some crazy situations. That is crazy. But he tries to think of things and, and be prepared and have food and water. And, he, of course, he was looking at all, all of our medical supplies. Right. We demonstrated all sorts warehouse. of different, different <laughs> things for him. And uh, you might just see us on a segment of... Uh, <laughs> Channel 6 in Orlando very, very soon. Yeah. Hey, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for listening. We're almost at the end of the show. I do want to let people know that the third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for Medical Help, is not on the way, is available on Amazon. I'm still seeing people buying the second edition. The third <laughs> edition is a bigger book. <laughs> More illustrations, more topics. Buy the third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Believe me, you will not be sorry that you did. You'll be you'll be very glad you got you got that, and and it has the most up to date information. It also won the 2017 
Book Excellence Award in the category of medicine. So it is an awesome book. We are very proud and very grateful for the award, and we hope that you'll get a copy of that soon. This is Joe Alton. And Amy Alton. Thanking you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour. We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. 